Remember last week I was going to talk to you about Marie Kondo? Yes. She makes the pies, right? Is that not who that is? Oh, that was Marie Callender. Sorry. Marie Kondo created this concept of living a life of tidiness and simplicity. You only keep things that spark joy inside of you. What does that even mean? Okay, here's the problem with that. You got a t-shirt, let's say, that you got for running the local 10K. It was a miserable experience. Well, it didn't spark joy. If you ran the 10K, though, you because when you think about it, you think about that challenge. I just think about it, I'll never do that again. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, healthcare systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. Welcome to episode 102 of Touchpoint. I am your co-host, Reed Smith. On the other side of the microphone is Siri calls him Chris Boyer. You've discovered my secret identity. <laughs> I'm a Frenchman that's disguised as a, a person from Colorado that now lives in Minnesota. Here's the problem. I don't understand because I say your name normal and then she repeats it back that way. Well, So, so she understood what I was saying. So why not just, anyway. She's more refined than you are. And she understands my sensibilities, so. <laughs> I guess. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, we are a couple weeks into the new year. Hopefully everybody's settling in. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting. Touchpoint.health is the website. Rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get your podcast. This will be a fun one. This is going to be about the digital native, if everybody remembers that Gilligan's Island episode. <laughs> It was the one after the Globetrotters, I think. That's right. That's right. The digital native, Reed, your favorite generation. AKA the millennial. This is my gift to you for the new year, Reed, is a whole episode <laughs> that we could rip on millennials. So here we go. Not really. Not really. But I think it is an interesting conversation. This was really born out of an interview that we'll hear later that you did with a good friend of ours, Dr. Ferris Tamimi from the Mayo Clinic. He said something in the middle of that uh, interview, this idea that the, the coming of the digital native is a big thing. Before we do a quick shout out to... One of our sponsors, Loyal. Uh, what do visitors to your hospital's website really want? That is the million-dollar question. But until recently, we haven't had a great way to answer it until now. Well, yeah, that's right. Because Loyal's conversational platform, which is called Guide, allows you to not only engage with your site visitors, but also understand better the standard analytics, what your patients are searching for. With Guide's robust analytics dashboard and built-in feedback feature, you can finally see why they're visiting your site and how you're able to help them. That's right. So if you'd like to learn more about Guide and uh, maybe even schedule a demo, you can visit them online at loyalhealth.com slash demo. That's loyalhealth.com slash demo. And Reed, if our listeners are going to Hims, be sure to stop by their booth, which is number 4573, and say hello. Whether you go to their website or stop by their booth, make sure you tell them that the Touchpoint podcast sent sent you. Digital natives. That is the younger generation, right? That's right. The younger generation. Those it, it could be millennials. It could actually be the generation after millennials. So it's it's a little bit of the both of those straddles both of those stereotypes. 
But it's not me. <laughs> I remember being on hold with Blockbuster. People don't know what being on hold means, nor do they know what Blockbuster is. <laughs> well, that's one way that we can actually define who is a digital native or not. I actually found a really funny quote that was written in all seriousness, but I'm going to try to read it straight, read and, and feel free to uh, interject where you can. They okay. say that today's young people are digital natives. They have no notion of a time before mobile phones. And will never have seen a cassette tape. Mm. And soon may not even need to pass a driving test to get behind the wheel of a car. Any question about them not fully embracing intelligent technology is a moot one. Of course they will. They already are. They both accept and accept it. Does that help us with the definition of what a digital native is? It's maybe a little dramatic, but yeah. So, I mean, I think it's folks that have used technology their entire life, but they they just, they don't know what it would be without it, right? They've never talked on a rotary phone. They've never, uh, you know, gone to rent a movie at a store. You know, they don't know what it was like before computers, you know, having a personal computer in the home, you know, iPads and iPhones have probably been around at least the majority of their life. They go up to magazines and try to enlarge it by moving their fingers apart on the, on the <laughs> yeah. pages, right? Yeah. Zoom in. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. They wonder why the refrigerator is not voice activated. Right. Exactly. We get the fact that these people have been raised all their lives with digital and all these all those things. But I, I'm wondering if just because it's around you, does it mean that you know how to use it well? You know what I'm asking? Oh, for sure. I mean, this is, you hear people talk about, especially in sports, right? That a lot of the problem with youth sports, the reason like junior high and high school coaches a lot of times don't love the way some youth sports are run is because by the time they get the kid, they're having to try to break all these bad habits or or untrain them and then retrain them, you know, the right way to swing a bat or to throw a ball or whatever, right? So it's kind of the same thing, you know, left to your own devices, again, no pun intended, you're going to pick up a lot of bad habits, so to speak. Right. So like as you're growing up and you have whatever social media account is relevant to your generation, you know, it could be Facebook, it could be Instagram, it could be Snapchat, whatever. Snapchat. <laughs> um, that you're you're using it in a way that you're kind of learning and you're growing with it and you know and, and you may advance and like we talked about this in a couple episodes ago where 10 15 years later you might look back at what you did that so long ago and you're like that was a different me that's not who i am professionally you don't really understand it yet even right because I, I look back at tweets that I sent mm, 10, 11 years ago uh, at this point because I had it tied to Facebook. Like the Facebook like memory thing will pop up and there'll be like a tweet, you know, actually, even though it's in. in and it's funny because I like I remember tweeting out. And so this will <laughs> tell you how long ago this was. I tweeted out like, are there any hospitals on here? So first off, there weren't. And secondly, it was just so funny that there was that few of people there. So contextually, the way we use and think about Twitter is very different than we did in 2007, 2008, even 2009 and 10, but especially seven, eight, nine. You know, you look back and go, oh, okay, well, that's not how you use that. Or, 
you know, that was, that was dumb, or maybe I shouldn't have said that or, or whatever the scenario is, I guess. I shouldn't have taken pictures of myself drinking at that, you know, or getting wasted at this party or whatever, or I shouldn't have said those things about people that 10 years later don't look so good. I look a little bit racist or sexist. But here's the other thing I think about too, when I think about technology is that we're making technology easier and easier to interact with and become seamless part of your life. And I think that also some of these things are just so ubiquitous in our lives. So just there all the time that we don't even regard them as technology and we're not paying attention to what's going on. Yeah. I mean, don't you think some of the expectations going to evolve with that a little bit because it is so ubiquitous and, you know, these digital natives or the younger folks are going to be the ones shaping, you know, the way this goes in the future, the expectation uh, of some of those things, I think, I think will change. You see it in the news all the time, but if you think about the ones I, I especially feel bad for are some of these kids that are playing college sports right now. And somebody digs back and finds a tweet they sent out when they were 14 years old. They're 19 now. You know, so that was only five years ago. But in their world, I mean, that's like you know, a quarter, you know, 20% of their lifespan. Are we going to hold them accountable for something they said when they were 14? I'm glad I didn't have Twitter. You know, I, now I'm not trying to you know, defend the statement itself. But I mean, is the expectation, I guess, of how these things are part of our lives and you know, evolving with us, even with our thought process and our maturing, because kids are getting on these things at 13 years old, um, I think we'll see some of that change. And you hear about people that are in our generation, yours and mine, Generation X. We are in an opt-in mentality. Like, we don't want to get communications because we want to opt-in. But they always say that, you know, the millennials and even younger are sort of like, oh, yeah, well, we're, we're always opted in. We're in an opt-out approach, right? We want to get out of things. So we're okay if you sign us up as long as we can opt out of that email. That may be sort of that, that influence of, like, how we even – regard technology is going to be different because we're now realizing that there's Alexa's everywhere and they're recording our voice. And that's just the way it is. And Facebook knows everything about me and Instagram knows everything about me. All of this information about me is available to be sold on the public market. That's just the way it is. It's kind of a little bit scary to think about. And it's an interesting time to be kind of walking through some of this because we'll see some of these platforms, you know, sunset at some point, I would assume, uh, through consolidation or just the, the next greatest thing or whatever it may be. I'm not sure the information ever will. I mean, once it's kind of on the internet, it's on the internet, so to speak. And because of that and because of the evolving, I guess, perspective of, you know, what has been said over a period of time online may, may evolve and some of those types of things. So will the expectations, uh, which I think kind of makes its way into, you know, healthcare delivery, our, our own care and health and well-being and some of those types of things. There's two different ways that we can kind of look at the impact that this quote unquote digital native might have. In healthcare, think about it, one, from the consumer perspective. And then the secondly, we could talk a little bit about, you know, from the employment perspective and, and physicians and all that. Which audience do you want to talk about first? 
Let's talk specifically about the working in healthcare to the professional audience. One of the things that I realize I've worked in many hospital systems is we all have very stringent policies around compliance and how we use email and social media. Mm -hmm. And it's drilled into you on day one. That's part of your orientation. Here is the policy as you as an employee, what you can and cannot do with email, with social media. Yeah, I, you know, the last new employee orientation I sat through was some years ago, quite honestly, uh, in a healthcare system. I was kind of auditing and, and, and I remember the, the director of like uh, information security or something, I don't remember his title exactly, comes in at the end of orientation. So everybody's like the end of day two, you know, and everybody's just like shot. They're ready to get out of there. And he goes through the whole deal of like, listen, you know, don't don't spend all day shopping online. Nobody's going to be policing it necessarily, but your managers are going to be watching if it's an issue. You know, you're not really supposed to be doing that kind of a thing. And so like right at the end, almost like as an offhand comment, he's like, and social media is blocked. So. <laughs> like, does he not know everyone in here is on their phone? You know, kind of a thing. But anyway, it's just funny because we felt like, well, let's write a policy. And we did our part, so let's just set that over there. Now we can move on to the next thing. <laughs> we just actually revamped our social media policy in our health system. And it was interesting because we came back with like a recommendation. Of course, you, what you have to do after you write your policy is compliance and legal has to look at it. And our legal team even gave us feedback and said, you guys can't be as restrictive as you're trying to make this because of the National Labor Review Board and mm-hmm. other other rulings. I thought that was interesting. That's almost to me like a little bit of a turn that we, as being the as so-called social media experts, that we were a little bit more restricted than what our lawyers were saying. So um, maybe that's refreshing. And that's probably not true in every health system. The big issues historically have always been really, it really kind of comes down to, to three basic categories. One is security issues. That's the reason we don't want people participating or spending time on these platforms inside of our walls because there's a security issue. That's a valid concern, but I think somewhat easily addressed. So that's a little more of an IT thing, and I'm not going to wade too far into that. But it's not like because we're watching YouTube videos that like, you know, telemedicine is not going to work because we don't have enough bandwidth or something. I think we can kind of get past that one to some degree. One of them is a productivity concern. We don't want people playing on the internet, on social media. And that's a management issue. That's not a social media issue. Hire better managers. If your nurses are playing on Facebook, that's your manager's problem. And then finally is is a, is a uh, privacy concern, which it, there is a privacy concern. But, I mean, you can paste anything in an email and send it. I mean, it's not like there's not already privacy concerns. They can physically tell their neighbor about something that happened that day, and that's a privacy concern. So these are just tools of the time. It's not really issue-wise anything different than we've historically dealt with. And what's interesting is, is that you could, through an employee orientation, you know, indicate, you know, it's not legal to share PHI, et cetera, and get, kind of get into the interests of PHI. But then wouldn't you think that a digital native would kind of intuitively know that when they started? Well, yes, I guess is the short answer. But I think some of it is, is just the chance that, that people are too comfortable with it. I see. So this is mm-hmm. one of those things. That, and I remember hearing some friends of ours whose children had the little mini dirt bikes, you know, that you ride around a little 50 CC dirt bikes or whatever that like five and six year olds are riding. 
And from the outside, you go, holy cow, that's dangerous. Like, why would you let a little kid ride a dirt bike around? And they were like, actually, the four-wheeler is much more dangerous. What? How? And they're like, because you get way too confident. You're way too comfortable on a four-wheeler. A dirt bike, you have to, act, you know, or a motorcycle, you actually have to learn how to ride and you have to pay attention to what you're doing. You can't just like coast around on four wheels. Don't, don't think this is like you should buy dirt bikes for your children. But I thought it was an interesting point of this idea of being too comfortable. We've got a highway here uh, just outside of Austin that the speed limit is 85 miles an hour. If the speed limit is 85, you can go 93, 94. Pretty much, that's what everybody's got their cruise set on. If you're in a brand new car, nothing to it. Set the cruise, put it on 95, you're just clipping down the interstate like everybody else. We have a Jeep, Jeep, and like you get in that and go down the interstate going 95 miles an hour and and you're like holding on for your life. (laughs) I think a lot of these tools, a lot of these things have become, in a way, we've allowed ourselves to become too comfortable with how we use them, how we participate in them, and that everything we see, that couldn't happen to me. Who would post that or who would, you know, and we just don't think about our own privacy settings or what we post or how we participate or what we say. And I think about that. And from my perspective, you and I, read, we're older than the digital natives. And yet we use all of these digital tools as well. But we also spend a lot of time in using them in a very safe way. We're opting out of things. We try to put on ad blockers wherever we can. We focus in on our security settings. All of these things that we're doing is because we're approaching these tools with great care and great concern. And that's partly because we teach other health systems how to use them. But the other part of it is, I think maybe going back to that generational thing, is that just because our perspective on these things is that PHI is that important? And in the future, maybe the digital natives are going to grow up and go, why are we even having HIPAA? Why is this even a concern? All of our health data should be available to anyone because maybe it's easier. Maybe more people can find diseases if they have access to my DNA records. All those companies are selling that stuff anyway, right? (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) We're in an interesting place where the technology and then just the way we live our lives are overlapping and evolving and, and even transitioning, I guess, to a point where the people that are running and leading the healthcare initiative now are not digital natives. The ones that are participating and receiving the healthcare are starting to become more probably digital native focused because they're the ones coming in. They're the ones, you know, having babies and starting families and starting to participate in the healthcare system, at least broadly speaking. I know there are people that are, you know, born with more acute needs and some things like that. That's, you know, that's a little different, but just in general. And then you got the boomers that are, are high utilization right now, but they're, they're going to be, you mean, exiting the healthcare system in, you know, 10, 20 years. And so the people that are running the healthcare system, though, are still uh, in between those two kind of generations and, and will be. So mm-hmm. I think it's going to be an interesting transition to some degree, and it's going to be being pushed by the digital natives. And then the people running it are still kind of hold on to the way we do things now. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, and that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered, and they're certainly not being analyzed. 
This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. Is this a good time for us to pivot towards consumer, towards patients and their view of digital? Yeah, absolutely. Because this whole concept of HIPAA being outdated because the newer digital native generations might perceive their health data as being not that important to to be private about. Think about how consumerism is shifting the way we're retooling our entire industry. And a lot of that's coming from these digital natives too. My middle child uh, just turned nine years old at the beginning of December. And for her birthday, she wanted an Ancestry.com, you know, the DNA kit thing, because she wants to see the little map and the percentages and the charts and where this is. She's nine. When she's 18, 25, 31, whatever it is, like, I didn't think of anything new. Like, this is the expectation. I mean, this is what she's doing. This is what she wants to see, wants to be a part of. I mean, I could go talk to her about privacy right now, and she wouldn't even know what I'm talking about. She's like, exactly. what, what do you mean, privacy? What, what? <laughs> so from a consumerism standpoint, Train's long since left the station, obviously, on what consumers want in a digital fashion. It's like whatever matches up the rest of their life. And so we're just seeing more and more of that. I think that the digital native will not only impact the way we perceive privacy in the future, it's already causing us to go through and simplify, make things a little bit more convenient and easier for them to access care. The big rise of mobile and telehealth is a big is a big thing, right? You and I like it because it's convenient. We don't have to take time off of work or whatever. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe the digital native is just so used to technology and maybe is a little bit lazy and that's why they want to access care that way? Probably so. I don't know if lazy is really the right word, but it's just kind of the expectation. It's like, well, why Mm -hmm. go do that when I can do this? Why do I have to go to a doctor's office? Why can't they just come through my iPad into my home so I don't have to leave the video game system or whatever I'm doing? I'll be honest. I, you know, I rescheduled my annual physical just because I was like, isn't it flu season? Like, I don't want to go into a doctor's office where everybody's sick right now. Like, I'm when I'm not sick, you know, I actually didn't, because I was lazy, coincidentally, I didn't actually get it rescheduled and uh, <laughs> had to go. But And then, of course, I was like sitting across the room while kids were coughing. I was like, I knew this was a bad idea. Like, I'm healthy enough. This is, you know, why am I in here? But yeah, I mean, it's like, why go and do when, you know, it can come to me? And, and that's what happens with everything else. And I get it. It's a convenience play, right? But there is a certain value of going to a doctor. Our telehealth program that we have at our health system, it can treat a lot of different types of conditions and treatments. But I think that there's going to be an expectation that at some point in time, the user might say, well, why can't you diagnose this through the iPad when the doctor may need to take a biopsy or or something? Yeah, absolutely. You found an interesting article, you know, when it comes to healthcare, teens and adults are are digital natives. And it talks about, and I think this is what really kind of hones into the point, it says 87% of teens and young adults surveyed say that they've gone online to find healthcare information, which isn't a disparate from the national average of 80%. However, teens tend to seek health information using a wider variety of digital resources Mm -hmm. than older adults. 
if we kind of look at the larger bucket of like digital, well, most everybody is using digital eight out of 10, you know, or accessing the internet or something like that. But it says, you know, 64% of teens have also used mobile applications related to health for fitness, sleep, meditation. You got the connected scales and the Fitbits and the Apple watches and, you know, different things. So I think that's where, you know, we'll start to see more movement is in that quantitative connected self. I totally get that, you know, convenience. I'd like to get the ability to book appointments with a text message and to do things. But there are certain things that when you're booking an appointment with a doctor, do you think that a text message would be enough to communicate that information? I mean, when we schedule an appointment for a patient, in order to make it easier for them to access care, we want to get all that paperwork done before they show up so that it's we can get them really quickly to the doctor so they don't have to sit in that waiting room. But in order to do so, we have to ask them 30, 40, 50 questions, you know, sometimes. Can you do that over a text message? You could, and then just have them fill it back out again when they come in. (laughs) That's what we do anyway, right? We talk about interoperability a lot, but that's where we're going to have to have some of this stuff work together in, in a sense. A good example, back to the the annual physical thing, they, you know, they were like, we're going to need you to come in 30 minutes early. And I'm like, for what? So you go in, they hand me a clipboard with a printout, like of all my stuff. Could you verify this is all correct? Yes, it is. Okay, great. Thank you. I'm like, so now what do I do with the next 29 minutes that I'm here early? We haven't tailored a lot of this to meet the expectation, whether it be digital Uh, or otherwise, you know, there's got to be a way that they can figure out that that is still the correct information. Why do you need me to verify this? Why do I need to show up 30 minutes early? So we're still participating in the system as providers, like we always have, even though we've got more complex tools in a lot of cases, right? So the efficiency is still lagging a little bit. We do need to make things certainly efficient. But I was reading an article recently, Reed, about how there's something called necessary friction to make the user transaction that much more meaningful. If you make things too easy is the premise, people will disregard it. It loses value. When you're making an appointment with a doctor, that's kind of important. And you need to fill out relevant information because there's going to be financial transactions involved. You have to involve your billing of your insurance. You might have to get all this information. And so is that necessary friction to access care? And are we citing too much on convenience to appease to towards that digital native because everything else is that much easier? Yeah. I mean, you want the perceived value still. So you want the physician to come in, you want him to still use a stethoscope and breathe in, breathe out. Mm, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. You know, and he's doing his job. I'm getting some value. Whereas quite honestly, he probably has most of that sorted out, you know, without asking you all that stuff or doing a lot of those things potentially. I'm not saying there's not value in the physical exam because there obviously is, but my point being as technology gets better, there's going to be less human interaction needed, but will we still see the same value in it? Are we going to get the right diagnosis? Sure. We're going to, we're going to create really great cameras on our iPhones that we could get really close up and take a picture of that weird rash that's on our skin and we could send it to our nurse so we don't have to get up and go to the doctor's office to have them look at it. But is that good enough? Is that going to be as worthwhile enough as a biopsy? When will be that time when virtual care gives a misdiagnosis that may result in, you know, a person 
you know, heaven forbid dying, is that going to make us go back and go, wait a second, have we cited too much on convenience to appease the digital natives? I don't know. But if the digital natives are running it, does it matter? (laughs) They'll be like, that's an acceptable discrepancy there. 20% is okay. (laughs) That's a failure rate. Exactly. (laughs) Before we get to the interview here in a minute with Dr. Tamimi, you found an article which is kind of interesting. talks about a couple of myths. And the article is actually titled, Busting the Myths of the Digital Native. And this is a recent article from, from this past October but three surprising beliefs you probably have about your child's tech ability. So here it is. We're going to bust these myths. Let's bust them. About your very children that are going to allow them to then instinctively evolve healthcare delivery. So the first myth that we're going to bust is that children instinctively know how to use technology. Yes. How do you feel about that? Well, they do. So they use it a lot. It talks in here that, that, that while they use it a lot... It's not a very deep understanding or deep usage. It's kind of like I tell people like in the digital space, I know a whole a whole bunch of different topics, but I'm just not, you know, I'm not real deep in any one. I know a little bit about a lot. So it's kind of the same deal. You know, they're, they're on the surface and it's mainly in the communication space, right? So email, text, internet, you know, things like that. But they're not super deep in what makes some of this stuff work. It's much like everything else. I mean, you can learn how to use, uh, let's say you learn how to use a bike to ride around like you were describing earlier, but that's not going to make you a professional at using this technology. You have to get taught what really the bright ways of using it is. They did a study here that says only one in five children studied that using a file sharing site or created a pet avatar, and half that number wrote a blog post. A very small percentage of these children are actually really applying it in a very deep way. They're just using it in a very superficial way. It's like kind of handing them an iPhone, and all they do is like text their friends. So myth number two, children are good multitaskers. Of course, they're much better than we are at multitasking, right? Actually, that's not necessarily true, right? We know that frequent multitasking and using different kinds of media at the same time is not something that just children natively have. And I think some of this comes from, they, they talk in here a little bit about, and so let me take this for, for what it's worth, but we increasingly pack the schedule of our children, right? So they've got something every night and different sports and activities and all these types of things. And what they're seeing is that that cognitive load is actually making it harder for people to shift their attention from one thing to the next. I mean, I see this with my own kids. I mean, we go to school every day and every morning it's like, have you brushed your teeth? Where are your shoes? Do you not need a water bottle today? You know, you just go through, it's like, do we not do it? We've done this like a hundred times so far this year. Like, why is this a conversation? And the solution there is, is trying to help uh, your children or, or whoever it is to focus in actually, you know, spend time focusing not just on your phone or the video game or YouTube or whatever it is, um, and actually counter you know, what they say harder problems to help them grow. And I mean, you think about it too, like in professional education, if you're sitting there and, and going through like learning how to do some surgery, you sure don't want to have your phone out to lose focus. And I get the promise of future virtual reality, helping to augment surgery and stuff like that. But you want to use the technology in a way to help you focus, not to distract. Okay. You ready to bust the third Mm -hmm. myth? 
that technology and especially social media prevents kids from having healthy social emotional lives. They do talk in here about uh, some research showing that using technology and social media can make us anxious and depressed. <laughs> Especially reading the news lately. Yeah. I mean, it, it can make you anxious, right? I mean, you get you get trained to that little bing or the little vibration when a thing a text comes in or the you know, whatever, the like or the comment or whatever. You get trained, it's kind of like that Pavlov that, you know, you're just like you're watching and you get that rush, you know, every time that comes in. So at some point you know, when that's not happening, then you get kind of a downturn. Social media, I think, does have have a uh, a real impact on our emotional well being. I mean, this is I've talked about this before, but the levels of anxiety and things like that. You know, I got to where in, in the summers when we'd go to the beach or something like that, I would take a week, you know, digital sabbatical, no phone or iPad or computer or anything like that. And it would take at least two to three days for me to relax enough to be okay not having it. And so that was really an eye-opening experience for me uh, to understand that, you know, while maybe I'm not technically definitionally a digital native, I mean, we're, we're in this thing enough that we probably at least play one on TV, right? And so it did, it, t- it takes me time to come down off of that. And so the idea of moderation is is hard. How do you turn it off at night? You know, how do you not look at it first thing in the morning? Technology is meant to help us in many ways and can help us, but in the very ways that it can help us, it can also make us desensitized or even hypersensitized to things. And so in those particular ways, you know, we have to be very cognizant of technology being the sort of the panacea or the future state of solving our digital problems. Yeah. So we didn't do a very good job busting that last one, but, but there is a real upside to technology. You know, allows, you know, kids to foster and have a diversity of, available to them that probably a lot of us did not. You know, you grew up in a town around people that, you know, were much like you because of geography or at your school and and things like that. Well, now you have the ability to connect and have that diversity online and, you know, potentially foster that respect and tolerance of, of differing opinions and backgrounds and beliefs and things like that. So there is that upside there. And so that's kind of the busting of that myth. But on the flip side, Facebook is actually trying to figure out the best way to positively uh, um, adjust our emotions. Oh, well, good. Good. So they'll figure it out before us, you know. All right, we'll just leave it to them. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast. I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, you know, they've got a consumer experience platform that, that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would, I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else, they've also got some complimentary solutions on their website. But, but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems, kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to influencehealth.com. 
All right, welcome back to the Ask the Experts section of our podcast. And today I am talking with a gentleman, a scholar, a person that I've known for a number of years and I've had some great conversations with, and I think we'll enjoy today's conversation as well. And that is Dr. Ferris Tamimi with uh, the Mayo Clinic. Uh, good afternoon, good morning, Chris, depending on your <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Ferris, I, you and I have known each other for years. We've uh, taught, had conversations all throughout the United States in various different locations. But um, some of our listeners may not know a little bit about you. So can you, you mind sharing a little of your background? It would be, it would be my pleasure. So I, I serve as the medical director for the Mayo Clinic Social Media Network. And our enterprise objective is to strategically apply social media in healthcare and research, education, and clinical practice. Uh, clinically, I'm a cardiologist. I do advanced heart failure. I'm the program director for our Heart Failure Fellowship Program. Uh, but I wear both hats, and I enjoy wearing both of them immensely. <laughs> well, and you, you wear them very well, too. So, um, And uh, so, Ferris... I'm so glad you're on today because maybe we could talk about the, you know, how do we interact with trainees and bring them up to speed on social media and other new digital tools. So it, for us, we view this as a moral obligation to train our trainees effectively to participate in the, in the upcoming era. And, and we view social media the same as we do any other tool we offer them, be it uh, clinical training and diagnostic approaches, be it surgical techniques. They need to use social media tools, both use them, be cognizant of them, but use them professionally and correctly. And so there, there are a variety of ways we do that. The first is we have a social media and basic certification program, and it is a CME certified program that covers all the tools in social media, moving from, from visual to Twitter to Facebook to video, and focuses on their application in healthcare and on healthcare professionalism. The second thing we've done, which I found very effective and useful, is we let them run many of our enterprise accounts. So, for example, in cardiology, our trainees run the cardiac social media account, the Twitter account. Uh, they're assigned mentors, but not social media mentors, but clinical mentors. For example, I'm the heart failure mentor for our cardiology Twitter account. And we view that as a safe sandbox for them. Mm -hmm. So it's not that we're observing their remove, but we're available to watch what they do. We're available to give feedback and input. But it allows us to both model and mentor in one environment. From their perspective, they've found this to be an incredibly uh, advantageous tool for them. Uh, they've actually turned it into career options. One of our recent, recent graduates, Jay Whitmer, was offered a position when he finished training in cardiology fellowship as an assistant journal editor because it was recognized that his ability to use social strategically would help both him and the journal effectively. Uh, they also spend a great deal of time collecting affinity data. So they know what works in Twitter and healthcare and cardiology, for example, when to tweet, what kind of tweets, how to use hashtags strategically. But fundamentally, we view this as a tool they have to know how to use in the mm -hmm. upcoming era. Social media is becoming ubiquitous in our lives, in right. our daily lives, and I know the newer generations are, are growing up with this as part of what you're seeing. Are there generational differences that you see uh, with the different trainees that you work with? So there are some generational differences. The majority of the younger trainees tend to uh, choose Instagram over any other platform tool. But their, their universal approach is fairly consistent. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they enter training having closed their personal accounts. Hmm. They do that when they apply for the program. They actually shut down their Facebook, their Instagram, their Twitter account, because they understand that we may look at those accounts during the application process. <laughs> Once they're accepted at the program, they open them back up again. Hmm. 
And that's when we see the most jeopardy and risk uh, because that's when they start using them again in a fashion they would have before they were professional, mm -hmm. before they were healthcare professionals. And that's our opportunity to offer them uh, some mentoring and modeling. And we found that that's a, the prime time to ensure they've had completed the certification program we offer. Because by doing so, we prohibit those mistakes that we know are going to occur. That I think all of your listeners who are involved in healthcare uh, training will encounter whether they're aware of it or not. Um, moreover, when they do occur, we can point to, as a means of rectifying that performance barrier or performance failure, their certification training program we offer. And uh, so you mentioned um, the, the program itself, and you right. say that you, they have the, the sort of the 101 on the, on, on the different social media accounts. Can you tell us a little bit more about how, long, how much time do you, do, you do you work with them on, on training on these tools? So the, the program itself takes about three and a half hours to complete, mm -hmm. uh, and we expect that as an initial compliance before they begin using any of the tools from an enterprise perspective. And I usually meet with them periodically, at least once every six months to go over any opportunities that may arise. But most of it, because it's social, we, we model and mentor online. Right. So it's not face-to-face, -face, but I'm, I'm watching them on Instagram. I'm giving input regarding their tweets on Twitter. I'm talking about how to use Facebook Live when they go out to do a, a, a video shoot. Hmm. Um, and it's not just me. We also have, we're also blessed to have significant staff uh, who play a critical role in, in, in working with them as well. You, I think you refer to them as consults, right? You sit down and consult with them and talk to them about the tools, maybe give them in, input and advice. Is that right? It is. We, we tend to use medical training phrases. We talk about offering consults. Uh -huh. We talk about training as being a form of resonancing. Mm -hmm. We talk about completing training as being a form of fellowship. But those medical terms simply apply to what we're offering them, which is a chance to use what we view mm -hmm. as critical tools in the current era. Uh, from our perspective, there's nothing to replace the intimacy of a patient and provider in an exam room. That's that's most critical moment that occurs. Mm -hmm. But it's a mistake not to view the potential for the addition of one to many mm -hmm. the social can offer. If you're going to talk about vaccine hesitancy, uh, colonoscopy screening, hypertensive screening, any kind of population-based intervention or tool, and you don't use social in the current era, I think you do your patients and yourself a disservice. You actually have, and I've heard you speak about this before, right? And you have a, rules or advice, is that right, um, that, that you, you give to some of the... the I, I, I do, but they've evolved. Okay. I, I think it's interesting if I look back at my experience. When I first started doing this, I would often have to go to division or department yeah. and convince them that this is important. Yeah. Uh, to convince them this is something they should consider pursuing, uh, that doesn't happen anymore. N now, it's more, we would like to do this, which tool should we use, mm -hmm. what resources do we need, mm -hmm. How do we what is success using that tool, how do we measure success, mm -hmm. uh, what are the metrics we need to examine, and how much time is this going to take. So it's no longer an issue of this is important, but we want to be in this space. Help us craft a plan to do so. Right. And so those consoles have become a much more critical moment for us, understanding exactly what they want to achieve, mm -hmm. what they can allocate to, to make that a reality, and what they're looking, what they what they want to look at as a measure of success. Mm -hmm. uh, I think our world is changing. I think you you and Rita played a played a critical role in that. Um, but it's interesting watching it evolve as, as being a participant as opposed to an observer. Now I'm sure some people listening in are are in their heads thinking, what are some measures of success? Can you share a couple that maybe you've worked on, worked or developed? I'm sure they're unique to each. So if way. the majority of what we see clinically are, are either conversation elevation or practice efficiency. Mm -hmm. So um, what I mean by conversation elevation is, if I have a complex issue I need to discuss with a patient, and it's one that I discuss over and over again, if I offer that asynchronously, and the patient can consume that before the encounter, instead of beginning at ground zero, we begin at a much higher level. In my practice, we talk about pacemakers quite frequently, and they can be complex, both pros and cons. If I can 
have that nidus of a conversation delivered beforehand to not only the patient, but their family who may not be in the encounter, I begin at a different level of that encounter. And by doing so, I've elevated the conversation, but more critically, I've made myself more efficient. So those are the two metrics we look at for, for patient interactions. There are a variety of others we look at, uh, demand generation, referral base, apex referrals, but it really depends on the problem we need to address and how we can craft a consult to meet that problem critically and appropriately. It's interesting uh, because often, you know, I've heard uh, having physicians or, or trainees, right, uh, work on social media, they don't equate that to efficiency or time efficiency. And, and what you're saying is the, almost the polar opposite of that, right? No, very much so. And it, it's interesting for our trainees. They have much more, uh, much less nuanced metrics. For example, they're very focused on what, what gets me a higher retweet rate. Mm-hmm. How do I get better shares? And for them, it's almost a, a game that they're playing. Mm-hmm. But I think as they mature and understand the tools more effectively, you see a transition in how they approach how they're being applied. And that's what we want. Mm-hmm. We want them to not only be competent mm-hmm. at using the tools, mm-hmm. but cognizant of when they should. So when they leave our training program and opportunities arise, they can execute and do so successfully and more critically, professionally. It very much to, my, to me sounds as they do medical training, right? It's learning the tools, learning what's at the disposal, but being able to use all of that to address that particular need or symptom. I may have said that in, incorrectly. I'm not a doctor, but... No, you're, you're 100% correct. That's exactly what we're trying to do. Yeah. And, and you, you know this as, as well as any of us. Mm-hmm. We trust them with human lives. Mm-hmm. With appropriate training, they, they can handle Twitter or Facebook. Yeah. And, and I love my children, but I wouldn't give them a scalpel without making sure they knew how to use it correctly and safely. Mm-hmm. And it's the same for this. Our, our trainees can do this. Moreover, they need to be able to do this correctly. Mm-hmm. And it's our obligation as, as their faculty to help them craft a career that includes social media tools. Right. Now, it's probably safe to say that the industry in large is not as advanced as some of this program that you're describing. Is that fair to say? Have you seen uh, other health systems address social media training in this way? Uh, not in this kind of enterprise perspective, not structurally the way we have. I, I, I do think that's going to change. Mm-hmm. I think as, as institutions begin to recognize the value of social, mm-hmm. as they really see, see this as an additional health care tool, mm-hmm. and that's from a provider perspective what it is. Mm-hmm. It, it's not a broadcast medium. It's an additional health care tool. Hmm. So I, I think of this as, you know, again, one-to-one, patient and provider in an exam room. This is just one-to-many. Right. So this is an additional tool for me, to bro- for me to engage with patients, for me to listen and learn their care trajectory, and to offer content of value. So I think as enterprises begin to recognize this, I really would, would anticipate more effective utilization of tools like the ones we've structured. Many of the people listening in probably aren't, uh, don't have a program like this developed, but they might be interested in getting started. Would you provide them any uh, advice, tips, tricks? So one, one, I would understand what the enterprise barriers are at your institution. Mm-hmm. Two, I, I would involve your own legal department because it's important they'd be signing off early in the process. Mm-hmm. And three, I would ensure that your, your early advocates, mm-hmm. the, the people you've identified in your institution who have played a role in social, who are on staff, are involved at content creation, not content review. So they need to be a part of developing your training content, not asked to review it once it's completed. Uh, in the interim, if, if you don't have tools, we have tools that are available to people who may be interested. Our social media uh, Hootsuite certification module is part of our Mayo Clinic social media network. So membership in that network 
offers that tool to your trainees. And I think it's a great way to start for those who don't have anything available right now. We're both involved in that. I mean, we're recording here from the, uh, the conference, the annual conference that talks about that. So let's talk a little bit about that platform. So the social media uh, network that we, we established, I, I think, serves as a peer-to-peer network. And, and the value in the network is not Mayo Clinic. It's the conversations and interaction that occur. And I, I, we're, we're, we are at our, our annual meeting right now, and I honestly find that I learn as much as I deliver from our attendees. Every one of them have real value to offer. And to have a network where we can have conversations, we can have a safe space mm-hmm. to share what we want to explore, what challenges we face, is incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's the main value of the network, is that, that kind of interaction that occur both here face-to-face, more critically over the next year mm-hmm. uh, online. Such great information. I always get great information from you, Ferris. I feel like I'm learning every time I talk to you as well. So how will people get access to that? So they can, they can find us online. Social okay. media work online. Uh-huh. They will also include, include our social media basic certification. Okay. I, I'm on Twitter. So yeah. I'm at Ferris, F-A-R-R-I-S-T-I-M-I-M-I. Happy to engage with anyone, be it face-to-face, on the phone, on Twitter, however I can be of service. I, I think th- this, this has become... Our passion, yours and mine as well, and I think part of what we do is pay it forward, and I'd love to do so. Right. Well, we'll put all of those links in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time, Ferris. It's really great. Appreciate it. Chris, it's always a blast talking to you. Thank you so much. Well, Reed, that was a really interesting conversation that we had about the digital natives, and I also really appreciated the way Ferris and you know the Mayo Clinic, as he was just describing, actually uses teaching and, and formal methods of training to actually help their employees really embrace digital the right way in healthcare. And I think that really is inspiring to hear their story about that. Maybe Facebook isn't the actual solution, right? Maybe we ourselves as health systems have to embrace that and, and really take the charge with that. Absolutely. Mayo's obviously a good example in a lot of use cases. And I think this is one of them. Just the effort and, and energy they put into that and the importance that they put into it as a system. So anyway, it's always fun to hear from Ferris. It was good to see him you know, back in Jacksonville a couple of months ago. So uh, before we get out of here, uh, maybe a couple of recommendations before we wrap up the show. Well, I'm going to recommend something that you and I have I, I introduced you to, but it is the concept of Marie Kondo and her tidying up. There is a show on Netflix that my wife and I discovered that I think Netflix was pretty smart about releasing this right around the new year, and it's called Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. What it is, it's like you know one of these shows where someone comes in and and, and intercedes and kind of works with uh, people that are very, I would say, maybe messy. Sometimes they borderline hoarders. Marie Kondo is a person that is a professional tidier, and she has a whole system about how to help people become more neater in their lives. And you know, not surprisingly, the show illustrates that not only the if you start to make your house more tidy, your brain becomes more tidy, your relationships become that much more stronger and that sense of having a home becomes much better and this show really brings it forward and i I, for that reason i want to recommend for people that are not familiar or maybe have seen it promote definitely go watch a show on netflix called tidying up it's really cool i can guarantee you that was not an accident they released it this time of year but that's very cool we'll have to check it out i am going with a piece of software 
uh, kind of happened across this. And honestly, I don't even remember how I happened across it, but it's uh, called Shift. And it's desktop only. And you would probably classify it as an email client. Like you, you would use it on your Mac or whatever for, for email. The difference, however, is, uh, of course, you can put your, your email accounts in here. And you can, uh, you know, within the app, see not only your inbox, but if it's like a Gmail account or Gmail power, G Suite powered, you can toggle over to your calendar or your uh, G Drive within the client, you know, without going out to a browser, which is kind of cool. And then you can actually install a number of apps within this piece of software. So things like Slack or Facebook Messenger, HubSpot, CRM, Buffer, Facebook, Facebook Business Manager, Dropbox, Feedly, MailChimp, Wonderlist. I mean, there's like hundreds of them. And so you can actually use these applications all within what would be like this email client, so to speak. And so you're never leaving this client going out to a web browser. It's pretty slick. It's kind of cool. So, I, you know, that is sounds slick. Yeah. Yeah. I've only been using it for maybe about a week or so. And, you know, I think I'm going to like it. There, there's a couple of little, you know, oddities about it and, and things like that. One of which they don't have like an iOS app, for example. Uh, which I'm not sure how that would work anyway, to be perfectly honest, because you usually have apps for most of these things like Slack, for example. But especially for all your communication channels. So you have email, all your messaging apps like Slack and Facebook Messenger and things like that all in one place. is is kind of cool, kind of handy. And then uh, you can obviously, you can add extensions as well, like Grammarly or like Dropbox and things like that from an extension standpoint. So you can use it within you know, your email client and, and whatnot. So it's kind of cool. It's called Shift. I think the website is tryshift.com. And it's totally free? Uh, there is a free version and then there's some paid versions depending on what integrations you're, you're interested in or how many integrations, I think, or how many email accounts you have and some of that kind of stuff. I'm going to have to try that out. Well, awesome. Uh, good show. A little bit of a different uh, take today. And so I uh, would love to hear, you know, what, what types of episodes you enjoy. You know, the more the tactical ones or the ones that have a bunch of uh, things you can go try or some more philosophical discussions. Do you like a mix? Um, anyway, l- hit us up uh, on social and let us know kind of what you think. Uh, we certainly appreciate the support. Touchpoint.health is the website. We've got a lot of great shows out there and some good content coming down, you know, kind of especially uh, through the first part of 2019. And uh, some fun stuff we'll be talking about uh, before too terribly long. For Chris Boyer, I am Reed Smith, and uh, we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.